up, everyone? Today is a very, very big day on Collider Daily because not only are we reviewing Dune 2, which I know everyone wants to hear about, but it's Teresa's Collider Daily's debut. I'm so happy. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello. How are you doing? What are you up to? Um, I'm doing good. I'm currently in London, so time zones are being a bit different. Um, I'm just enjoying myself. I'm about to go to a play after this, so I'm very excited. I'm uh, I'm a little jealous. I'm a little jealous. I, uh, I've been bit by the Broadway bug, thanks to Appropriate. Now I'm determined to see more live shows. It's a good one. You're, you'll enjoy it when you go see it. I can't wait. Can't wait. All right. We are going to get right into it because today is the day we are allowed to give you a proper review of Dune 2. The social media embargo has been lifted, so you've probably seen a lot of those reactions come in, but this is an official review. We don't have to hold back, but we will hold back from revealing any spoilers, of course. So, Therese, do you want to take it first? What is your general reaction to Dune Part 2? So, I thought on the whole it was an improvement, but I felt like especially the first maybe two thirds felt very, very exposition heavy for me. And I, I feel like if you weren't watching the movie again and you know, you weren't getting a little bit of a recap, it might be a little jarring to just jump right back into the world. Cause it literally picks up a couple, I think hours after the end of the first movie. Um, but I thought the special effects were fantastic, especially that like final act, seeing the like sandworms and seeing like the fight on Arrakis, like that was amazing. And like the duel between um, what's his name, Austin Butler and Timothy Chalamet, also very very good. Um, but ultimately, I mean, I have a, like mixed feelings about it just because there was so much story to tell, and I don't know if there was enough time, even though it was a long movie. Mm -hmm. I I understand that. I think um, I had a similar reaction to Doom Part 1, which I really, really, really liked after a first viewing. And the more I watched it, the more I fell in love with it. Because I do think this this could be true of a lot of movies that are a lot of movie. It can be maybe a little overwhelming to experience it for the first time. But then when you have, you know, your, your footing a little more and a better understanding of what you're in for, you could appreciate the the nuance in the story, the performances, you could start to engage even more with the situations that they're in and how they're processing them. In general, though, here, I actually found it to be a bit of the opposite. I was very impressed by how quickly they they reset the chessboard in a sense. You know, we're a couple years removed from Doom Part 1, and it's like they just plopped that game down, they put all the pieces back on, and then they added some new pieces, and I... I kind of just got it. And it's probably also worth noting, I have read the book, but I read it once and I read it like forever ago. So I wouldn't call myself an expert. And there were a lot of details I had forgotten, but I thought this movie did a pretty good job of getting me caught back up and engaged with the extra layers that they're adding to the story here. I I will say story-wise, one particular one particular criticism, and like I, I hesitate to even call it a criticism because I understand why the characters are the are this way. Sometimes I could find their sternness and coldness 
creating a little bit of a detachment between me and them. And I found that with the first movie too, but also with the mm-hmm. first movie, that was something that went away the more that I watched it and the more that I was absorbed into their world. And I have a feeling that's going to happen here as well. But one person who I thought did exceptionally good work in terms of holding tight to how intense she is while also giving the audience enough access to a beating heart is Zendaya as Chani. I thought yes. she I thought she was phenomenal and because of that she wound up being a really successful anchor for this story for me and I wasn't quite expecting her to be positioned that way. She's so like I was going to say your comment about the coldness. I can definitely feel that from some of the characters, especially um, like Rebecca Ferguson's character, um, some of the um, Harkonnen characters. They're definitely a little bit more distant. But Zendaya's character, I mean, Chani is, I feel like almost like a point of view character. Like we're almost like seeing the mm-hmm. world from her point of view, or at least like we're in sort of in sync with her because she kind of doesn't take any bullshit and like, it's very much like, you know, you kind of you kind of vibe with her in that way. I think she's great in it. So, yeah, yeah. she's a high. She's she really is something else. And because you, you brought him up, I'll, I'll go to him next. Austin Butler as Fade Rotha was just like, I, I was fascinated. I found I Another found him. I think, <laughs> like really something else. The way I think I worded it in my tweet was uh, like, like fascinatingly disturbing, but magnetizing. I think I use a different word than disturbing, but I still think that applies. Could not take my eyes off of him whenever he was on screen. And like, he's another one that I thought did what I was talking about earlier so well, where, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with the source material, like he's a new character. And literally the second you see him on screen, you're like, I know what you're about. And man, Austin Butler just really makes the most of the opportunity to go that dark. And I was living for it. Yeah, I think especially when you're seeing him in, he has like a whole sequence to himself where he's like, you know, bathed in black and white. I think you can see it in some of the trailers. And it's that, that was like an amazing sequence just to see him like that. Like he has like a real like presence, like physical presence in that movie. And I mean, yeah, the minute you see, you you don't need to know his name. You don't need to know. He doesn't need to say a word. He steps into the room and you're like, okay, I can kind of get the vibe that I'm picking up from you. It is so, so true. I'll, I'll also give a little shout out to, to Javier Bardem and Josh Brolin. I loved them in the movie. And like, of course, Timothy Chalamet is just like, he's an A plus lead in this film. And that's, you know, I, I, I highlight and praise Zendaya for, for the access she's able to give us. I do think he's a little successful in that respect also. And that's not an easy role to do that with because like what Paul Atreides is going through is something that our brains should not be able to to compute and I think the movie does a pretty damn good job of letting us get at some of that but while also making some of it feel untouchable which I do think is kind of necessary in a story like this and his performance mm-hmm. and his ability to handle material like this is definitely a big factor in that element's success I will say seeing him grow from the first movie and seeing like that path to where he is now has been really satisfying and I think He's had, like, probably the most steady, like, performance for me as far as, like, portraying Paul. Like, I don't feel like at any point, like, he's sort of lost himself in the character or, like, the character's kind of, like, 
not as consistent. Um, but I will say, I don't know if I'm going to get heat for this. I don't think him and Zendaya have like great romantic chemistry. And when they're on screen together, I don't really feel anything. I'm going to be honest. Um, I feel, I, I do think that they tried very hard, but I think another problem, that problem comes from the fact that a lot of that part where he's in the desert feels very sort of cut up. There's like sections of this movie where I feel like I'm just, I've missed like a part of it. Um, There's like a specific scene where he goes out into the desert to like survive. And we get that first moment where he's like, I'm going out into the desert. And then like the next scene, he's like, I'm back and I've succeeded. And I'm like, what? What? We didn't even get like a mini montage. Um, So I think like that section was a little rushed, which is why I'm kind of getting that, that feeling that like, it's not exactly clicking for me, but the two actors are really good. So, I mean, not a lot to complain about. I, I did pick up on that particular t- time jump that that little missing missing bit, and I, I did want to know what happened that I didn't see on screen. So I will agree with that. I thought I thought they had enough chemistry. Again, it's such a like it's such a complex uh, scenario to be exploring a romantic relationship like this in because I also think like there's obviously natural attraction between the two that I think I felt, but then also so much of it is, you know, being complicated and muddied by the situation that they find themselves in. And it's, it's a very, it's not the easiest thing to layer. And I think it makes it come across like not a traditional romance, but I thought they played into that, that pretty well. Some of my favorite parts of this movie, though, or contributions to this movie was from the crafts people who like I I don't think any department could have delivered bigger than what we see in the finished film. I'm not going to highlight everyone. I want to leave some for you, uh, Therese. But in particular, Greg Fraser is a damn genius. He is one of the best working cinematographers. And I said it in my tweet. I think you've seen this for many, many years from him. But in particular, because he has now done pretty much Dune Part 1, The Batman, and now this, back to back Mm -hmm. to back. Like, dude's got an unparalleled eye. Every single frame of this movie is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And then on top of that, It's not just pretty for the sake of looking pretty. It always enhances the atmosphere. And one of the things I love about that quality of his imagery is that it ensures you're able to feel what it's like being in this out of this world scenario. Like, like I felt hot and tired and the challenge of trudging through sand while looking at Arrakis on screen. And I feel like a big part of the reason the movie is so successful in in achieving that is because of his cinematography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel that for sure. I mean, I have to also, like I said, the special effects in this are just out of this world. Like I really can't emphasize that enough. Like seeing the scope of some of these scenes, like I can't even you know, like a lot of times, sometimes when there's special effects, you kind of have to like fall in, you have to make believe to like believe like, okay, yes, like this is like these, when I'm watching Dune 2, it's like, this exists somewhere in the universe, like this is out there somewhere. It feels so realistic. And it feels like that, not only because of the special effects, but the way that the film is made and the way the camera's moving. And I think, honestly, one of the issues that I had with the first Dune movie was the sound editing. I often felt like it was way too loud 
Um, I don't know if it was the theater that I watched it in, but at one point I was literally like covering my ears to like protect myself. This was not the case in Dune 2. I thought it was fantastic. Like not just the score, but also just like the sound mixing and getting like sort of that feeling that like you're immersed into that world. It's just, it's just like superb. Like that was one of the things that I absolutely loved. The minute I walked out of that theater, I was like, I want to watch it again, just to like experience yeah. that again. Cause you can't the get sound. that in any other way. You're so right. The, the sound design in this movie is impeccable and so is the score, but also, you know, their choices for when to enhance score versus sound design are just so spot on in particular there's a there's a fight where there's no score and all you hear is what I like whatever sound design is involved and that that choice that choice was was pretty brilliant it definitely makes you feel the weight of every blow but then also how dire that particular fight is without spoiling anything but I thought that was exceptionally well done before we move on mm-hmm. to our next topic of today's show do you have any closing thoughts on Dune 2 I mean, honestly, I feel like, and I said this when I reviewed the film for Collider.com, that I feel like this is sort of, this could be like a great second film in a trilogy, and it definitely feels like we're leaning into another movie. It hasn't been greenlit yet, but it feels like it's going to happen. I think if this were to end right here, I would, it would feel incomplete to me. Um, but I feel like as a second film to leading into another film, it's, you know, it's fantastic. So mm. I could not agree more. I, I do because I know some people were complaining about that at the end of the first Dune movie that it didn't feel complete. And, you know, on the one hand, I understand that. But also, if these are meant to be chapters of Paul Atreides evolution, I feel like they are they are complete chapters and. Like there, there is a level of completion, but a door left open to further his story. Mm -hmm. It just, it makes sense to me and it leaves me wanting more, but without feeling like I didn't get enough. And I, I feel the same way about this particular installment as well. I think this is just a prime example of A plus blockbuster and IP filmmaking. And I wish more studios out there would take more note that if you entrust your IP, in, if you put it in the hands of someone that's a master like uh, Denis Villeneuve, who surrounds himself with really talented people, and you actually put trust in the people that you're hiring, you can mm-hmm. walk away or you're more likely to walk away with really high quality results. And it just really excites me because this seems like a situation where high quality results are about to be rewarded at the box office. And when art and business align, it just makes me happy because I am someone that always prefers the art to the business side of things. So I like seeing quality art rewarded in the way that all the higher it ups studios it. need it to be. It yeah, does I mean, it, it definitely deserves it. It's it's just such a like I can't imagine like a project that deserves it more because of how big like the people behind like it's just like thousands of people have worked on this and it like you can tell like it's like not just one person's project oh without a doubt without a doubt Um a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com um, so we wanted to squeeze in one more topic today. Slash, I wanted to force this one in because everyone out there knows I'm a Jurassic Park like nut. I'm a, a diehard <laughs> fan and I am going to track every single step Jurassic 
for Jurassic Four t- uh, World Four takes. So I'm going to read a little from the Hollywood Reporter. The headline is Jurassic World director found in Rogue One filmmaker Gareth Edwards. I want to get the phrasing right so we know specifically what stage these discussions are in. Gareth Edwards is in talks to direct Universal's latest installment of the Jurassic World franchise and to step into shoes that were worn, if ever so briefly, by bullet train filmmaker David Leach. So that's an important thing to point out. He is in talks. David Leach was in talks. Those talks broke down. That could happen here. But Therese, I have my fingers crossed so, so tightly. These don't break down. When David Leach's talks were first revealed, I like David Leach as a filmmaker, but if I take, and this is not to say that directors can't change and add more tools to their toolkit mm-hmm. and show they have more range, but all I have to work with is his previous films. If I take his previous films and I like bathe it over the Jurassic franchise, that's just not the Jurassic movie that I would get very excited about. However, if I look at what Gareth Edwards has achieved in recent years and I apply that to the Jurassic World franchise, sign me up. Dude knows what he's doing when creating a a blockbuster with texture, with that reach out and touch it feel. And that's what makes Jurassic Park so special. So to see him step into this franchise would make this franchise obsessed individual. I wore a Jurassic shirt today for this reason. I would be so happy. So happy. How do you feel about it? You know, I'm going to confess, I'm not as big of a Jurassic head as you are. Um, clearly, I... I I feel a somewhat somewhat of an attachment to it, but I do think I love Gareth Edwards. I truly, I mean, I think what he did with Rogue One is like the direction that we need to be going as far as franchises go. Like there is like a creativity there that sometimes is lacking when it comes to big IPs and big IP movies. So I hope that he can sort of like breathe a new life. Not that, you know, Jurassic Park has lost life that much, but I, I hope that he can like, push it into a new direction or at least like take us to a place that we haven't been before because I think that's like what excites me about him because I think like when we went to go see Rogue One it was supposed to be this familiar story because we kind of all knew where it fell in the storyline but it became this thing where it's like oh wow there's like so much depth to this and I kind of that's what I that's what I hope to see from from this I mean if he you know if talks progress into a full conversation Fingers crossed about that. So this just became an extra, an even more special episode of Collider Dailies, because in addition to this being your first dailies, this is also the first dailies with a super chat, which in all honesty, I did not even realize super chats were turned on in this channel, but now I know. Mike K wants to know, my one concern about this movie in general is the fact that Universal is insistent on keeping that July 2025 release date. Perhaps they are. I feel like we've seen so many release dates move around recently. I don't know. Maybe this is me trying to reach for a silver lining and towards what I want for the Jurassic franchise. But my hope would be if they are insistent on that date, maybe they would come to realize that they need to make a smaller Jurassic movie, which is something I've I've always wanted, a more intimately told story mm-hmm. about life is like when men must share world with dinosaurs so that's kind of what i would want to see anyway i mean i think having gareth edwards you know like the work he did on the creator no matter your feelings about you know the 
critical analysis of that film, the work he did on the creator with, you know, like the budget that he had, I think that's, it's not as unfeasible um, as it seems, but I do, I agree. Like the, the scope, like the story must, it has to be a lot smaller. You can't, you can't have like these big sweeping scenes and get it done within like a year and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, I'll just bring this up because I think maybe Robin here was at our screening of the creator, which I'll always take an opportunity to highlight, hosted by the wonderful Steve. Saw the creator last night and thought it was good. Not sure why people hated it. The cinematography and VFX were amazing, too. I'll just further emphasize the cinematography and give a shout out to the DP of that movie, Oren Soffer, who is actually Greg Fraser's uh, protege. So there's a, a an interesting connection there. So it should come as no surprise that the DP of the creator is exceptional after what we just highlighted about the cinematography in Dune Part 2. So there's mm-hmm. a fun fact for you. And with that, we should probably say goodbye. You got a show to get to. I show do have a show to get to. <laughs> very jealous you're seeing, but I'll be seeing soon enough on Broadway. I'm very excited. Um, before it's we funny. go... You deliver tons of wonderful work on Collider.com. Do you want to highlight a piece you are particularly proud of that you want everyone to check out? Sure. Um, It's not out yet, but the play that I'm going to see tonight is An Enemy of the People. It's a play on the West End, and I'm going to be reviewing it. So I hope you all go check it out. It has Matt Smith in it as the lead, uh, Jessica Brown-Finley. It's going to be fantastic. So, yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear about it. And I'll just tell everybody that our most recent Ladies Night is up and running on this channel. It is with uh, Talk To Me star Sophie Wilde. And now that I have watched cuts of these, I can say that two upcoming episodes are with actors from The Way Home. I I know some folks out there might be like, I don't want to watch a Hallmark show. This is probably the Hallmark show with the broadest audience I've I've ever seen. Like, admittedly, I don't watch a lot of Hallmark content. I watch that, and it's a really clever sci-fi concept, and it's got a really big uh, beating heart at its core. But anyway, we're doing a Collider Ladies Night pre-party with its young star, Sadie LaFlem Snow. And then after that, we are releasing an episode with Kyler Lee, who you probably know from Supergirl or if you you know, grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s like me, and you're obsessed with not another teen movie and know her from that as well. But like she's like truly an exceptional interview. Many, many really insightful stories to to be told on that episode. So keep an eye out for those and stay tuned. We will be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific for a brand new edition of Collider Dailies with Maggie and John. <laughs>